Hey, everybody. Welcome to All Have Another Podcast with Lindsay Hine. I'm your host, Lindsay. Thank you so much for being here today. Today, you're listening to episode 162, and I'm talking with Meb Kaflesky. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Generation You Can. You Can is my fuel source of choice when training, and guess what? It's Meb's fuel source of choice as well. You Can delivers smarter energy powered by Super Starch. You Can products give you long lasting, steady energy, and you don't get blood sugar spikes or crashes. Now, You Can has energy powder, energy bars, hydration products, starter packs, and they have gear as well. This is a company and a product that I stand by, but I want to offer you guys a discount if you're interested in trying out their products. You guys can go to generationyoucan.com slash another to save 15% and get free shipping. And the code, the promo code is another 19. All right, you guys, Meb is a guest that I've wanted to have on the show for quite a long time. If you don't know Meb, he's one of the greatest runners and people, honestly, people. I'll just say humans. <laughs> he's one of the greatest humans and runners of our time. Uh, there are so many accomplishments to list, but some of his most notable accomplishments are that he has won both the New York City Marathon and the Boston Marathon. He's an Olympic medalist in the marathon, and he's also a father of three daughters. He is an author. His new book comes out, 26 Marathons, in March. We're going to talk about that book in this episode of the podcast. And Meb is known in our sport for his honesty, his courage, his confidence, his humility, putting big goals out there and uh, showing up to win. And what Meb likes to talk about is um, winning doesn't necessarily mean winning the race, but showing up to the race to put your best self out there. And he's, he's done that time and time again. He's such a role model for this community and a leader in the world of running. So I know you're going to enjoy my conversation with Meb. I want to thank one more sponsor for the podcast here. Sponsors of this show, along with the Patreon page, kind of make this world work, make this world turn for me so that it can continue to be my my job. And the sponsor I want to thank, this is a new sponsor for 2019. I was introduced to them last year. I've been using this watch and that is Koros. I love it. I love it. I love it. Glenn is using it too. And we are big fans. And Koros, their watch is long lasting. It's a really nice sleek design. And they're really known for the battery life. You're seeing ultra runners like Sally McRae and Camille Heron wear this watch but it's not just a watch for ultra runners. It's a watch for marathoners as well, 5K runners as well. And guess what? Cross trainers. I have been swimming and biking to keep myself from getting injured in this beautiful sport of running. And I love so much that I can wear my Coros watch while I do laps in the pool and it tracks my laps. I love that. If you're in the market for a new watch or you know someone that is, send them over to Coros to at least check it out. Everything syncs to Strava. It's a really seamless, easy watch to use. And I'm talking easy because if, if I think it's easy, trust me, it's easy. <laughs> um, but you guys, you can get 10% off your purchase. And I highly recommend trying it out. Just go to Coros.com and use the code ANOTHER to get 10% off your purchase. All right. And if you're loving the show, I would appreciate it so much. If you would, guess what I'm going to ask for? Leave a rating and review on iTunes. It's one of the best ways potential new listeners can find us. So jump on that train and help make that possible. 
Uh, I love this review from Candace, the mother runner. This is my favorite running podcast. Wish she had something every day so I could listen on all of my runs. Great content, interesting guests. Questions are in detail and topics that we all want to know. Keep it going, Lindsay. Okay, Candace, I just worry that if I put out a show every day that you guys would really start getting annoyed with me. Like it'd be too much Lindsay all the time. So thank you, Candace, for leaving that review. And I know this is a long intro, guys. Bear with me. But the last thing I want to plug, <laughs> here I am plugging away, is my Donna Foundation fundraiser. If you listened to my episode with Glenn a couple episodes ago, my husband, you heard us talk about the fact that I'm trying to raise $10,000 for this organization that helps support groundbreaking research in breast cancer and also helps those and cares for those living with the disease. Now, I'm at $3,705. That's 109 people in the last two months who have donated to this. So a couple of my newest donations, Sue Meyer, Steph Williams, a sneaker queen, Candace Atkins. I wonder if that's the same Candace that just left a rating and review. I bet it is. Thank you, Candace. Sarah Krause, anonymous, Erica Sarah, Kristen Sonnen, another anonymous, Shelly Braun, so oh, I'm sorry that was so long, but if you have the means, I would appreciate it so much if you would consider donating to my Donna Foundation fundraiser. Link to that will be in the show notes. It's also linked up in my Instagram bio. Lindsay Hines 626 is my Instagram and I have the link to the fundraiser in my bio. All right, guys, enjoy my conversation with Meb Kofleski. Well, today on the podcast, I am really, really honored to welcome Meb Kofleski to the show. Welcome to All Have Another Meb. Thank you, Lizzie. Thanks for having me. I don't know if you remember this, but last year you were in Indianapolis for the 500 Festival Mini Marathon, and I hosted a panel that you and Alexi and Bill Rogers and Frank Shorter were on. Do you remember that? Oh, I remember that. Now that makes sense now. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you know, when you talk to many runners, and when they say, like you described, it, Indianapolis uh, <laughs> uh, conference and, and and whatnot, that, and then I have. I have a good memory of faces, not names, but now that makes sense. You did a great job with that. Oh, thanks. And you come to Indianapolis for that pretty much every year, don't you? Are you coming this year? I'm planning on coming this year. Uh, Howie, my brother and manager, does a great job. He also resides in Fisher, but I'm always a big fan of the Indy, uh, Indy uh, Speedway also. So, And the organization has done a great job to be able to come and be creative of what to do when I come to Indianapolis, whether it's you know, start from the back and catching people as uh -huh. much as I can or stay in the speedway, surprise people at the, half, uh, the halfway <laughs> mark and give them high five or, you know, stay at the finish line and, you know, put medals. And uh, the medals last year was really, really neat. Uh, they made a medal with the milk and with uh, my name on it. So it was pretty, pretty cool and creative people. And I just am always honored to be able to go to Indianapolis. And, uh, you know, I had a lot of history, Indiana in general. Uh, when I was at UCLA, believe it or not, there used to be RCA Dome and Bloomington, Indiana, where I won my NCAA titles and uh, the indoor meet in RCA Dome also. So, you know, it's been great to me in my run career, at the collegiate level, but also, you know, I never, I ran pretty hard. Decent last year. I didn't run hard. I was just pacing people, and uh, all of a sudden I got you know competitive and just helped each <laughs> out that group, and then ran about 69 minutes or so. So it's been a lot of fun to be there. Yeah, if I remember correctly, you ran. I feel like you ran a 
perfectly even split last year. And it was after you retired, but you still ran really fast. <laughs> no, it was fun. It was just, I mean, I, like I said, I was just, I just asked the group that I was running what pace they wanted to go. And they said, uh, you know, they were trying, one guy was trying to qualify for Chicago so he could get a, a like uh, an elite corral or something, not elite corral, but fat into the front more. Um, so we just stopped talking and chit-chatting and I wasn't planning. I was going to go six minute pace or six thirty pace and who can go with me. But then those guys needed help and we stopped talking and I said, just follow me. I'll, I'll get you a, a 529, 526 pace and end up running, uh, like you said, 69, very even pace. It was a lot of fun. I enjoy doing those. That's something you've done before. So another thing, another thing we have in common, Meb, is my sister lives in Fishers. So, and, and oh. I, yeah, I live in Indy. <laughs> my sister lives in Fishers. Um, and I'm from Bloomington. So oh, wow. all your Indiana <laughs> things that are happening, this is like my home turf. Oh, wow. No, that's great. No, uh, like I said, uh, I have a lot of friends. In fact, just uh, uh, as uh, uh, Frank Sullivan, a good friend of mine, and he actually went back to Eritrea with me last uh, two summers ago almost. Um, and, you know, like I said, Indiana has been it's been good to me. You know, the NCAA are there, NCAA headquarters, and uh, the United States track and field is there. And so, you know, it's a full circle, I guess. But uh, to have a brother there and a sister like you, it's, uh, hopefully I'll see her run if she's a runner or when, she, when I go visit my brother. I'll... Yeah. <laughs> Maybe you'll see her on the track. I bet she'll do the, the 500 this year. Well, oh, great. Well, Meb, we have to talk about lots in your career. You have a new book out, which is really – I'm I'm – almost through with it. And I'm loving it so much because it documents every marathon that you ran in your competitive career. But first, in case uh, people don't know who you are, which is funny to even say, but you know, maybe I have some listeners that aren't fans of the running sport. You know, you came to America when you were 10, you, your family immigrated here. And can you kind of talk about how your upbringing and your life, I'm going to say it wrong. Er, Eritrea, how do I say it? Eritrea. Eritrea. See, I still am going to say it wrong. No, no, Eritrea is the way correct way to pronounce Eritrea. it. So yes, I was I was okay. born in Eritrea, and I was there until I was ten years old. And uh, my dad was wanted by the ATP soldiers. That was the war for independence that was going on. I was born in the middle of the war, and it lasted about thirty. 31 years, and my dad has to make a decision with my mom that, uh, you know, if he's going to be prison or killed, it's not good to us. So he has to make something uh, of himself, try to go to a safe land, and he walked to Sudan, so which about 225 miles on his on his foot and uh, kind of mend in, and he made it 31 miles a day, seven days, seven days, and he was doing over a marathon a day, but he has to mend it with the community, and luckily he can speak uh, the Ethiopian language, the Grinya, and which is the Eritrean language, and Italian, and he made his way. And uh, but they promised each other with my mom that if he makes it to Seven, big if, because you never know what could happen in t- 225 miles where there's hyenas, tigers, uh, uh, scorpions, snakes, and uh, soldiers. So. But if they make it, he's going to look after us. And uh, fortunately, God bless him. Uh, he made it safe. And uh, I have a sister uh, before my dad was married, and uh, Ruth. And her, her mom was living in uh, Italy. She brought him from Sudan to Italy. And then after that, uh, she got him a job with his, doc- his boss, Dr. Brindici. And uh, my dad 
and let Michael, my sister's mom, Ruth, uh, worked extremely hard to get to the job and, and, and introduce him to the boss. And the boss, Dr. Brindici, uh, my dad got acquainted with him, and he asked him one day if he could loan him uh, 10 million lira in 1986. That's about uh, $6,000, US oh, wow. dollar, that is. And uh, he says, is that to save one person or to save everybody? Because in Eritrea, my two oldest brothers, I'm the third oldest, uh, but my two oldest brothers were kind of hiding in because the soldiers would come at night and surround the village and pick people who look old enough to hold a gun and go to war. So my mom was getting concerned, my mom. And uh, so he said, uh, once my dad heard that news, he says, well, he was trying to take two of them out. But my mom insisted that, you know, if he can't take everybody out. So when he asked Dr. Brindici for the 10 million lire, and that, my dad confirmed that it could save everybody with the money that he has saved. And uh, you know, Dr. Brindici tell him to come back on uh, Wednesday. That conversation occurred on Friday. And uh, when my dad came back on Wednesday, Dr. Brindici gave him a 10 million liter cash, a full of envelope. And he said, this is not a loan. This is a gift. And that's how we got saved. And uh, so you hear about so not so good about immigrants and other people who, you know, who, who are not for immigrants or refugees. But my life is a, a unique uh, that has been helped by many people, the many kind people in the in the world. And, uh, you know, I lived in Italy for a year and a half. And I remember the first time I saw my dad, I just mm. probably the second time I ever ran, probably no, notably. And the first time was when I saw a car and I didn't know what that thing was. I just <laughs> ran away. <laughs> it it kind of scared me. And I ran to the bushes. And then the other time was... My dad met us in Athens, and I ran into him, and uh, he says, hey, Merhawi, which is my brother who lives in Fisher, who is uh, four, four years younger than me. And he said, no, it's not Merhawi, it's Meb Ratom, or not my, known for Meb. And I'm like, oh, he just wanted tears. And he's like, my kids, my kids, you know, you know, I send you money, I send you clothes and money for food. What about those people who don't have those privileges? Uh, or he just, you know, he's a good humanitarian and uh, he just went to tears. And I remember my mom telling him, you know what, just make sure everybody's here because it's her our first time flying, it's our first time international and we didn't know the language and don't cry about sizes. They're going to they're going to grow eventually. And so just make sure every six kids are there. And that's how. We got saved and then moved to Italy for a year and a half and then learned Italian really quickly uh, in about six months. Uh, and then, you know, on October 21st, 1987, uh, through the help of Red Cross and my sister Ruth, we were able to come to uh, beautiful San Diego, America's finest city. I didn't choose it because of running or the weather. It just happened my sister was living here. And that's uh, how the story started in the United States. Wow. So are you trilingual then? Yes, I'm a trilingual, maybe quadrilingual. I uh, speak my native tongue, Tigrinha, uh, English, uh, a little bit of Spanish and Italian. And, you know, I feel, you know, if, if people have read your first book, they've done their research on you, they kind of know a little bit about that part of your story. But a lot of people maybe don't know that. And so I feel like it's really important in this entirety of the interview that, that that's a piece of your story that we talk about. And you're a father of three now. Uh, can, like, how do you, when you think about the first 10 years of your life and the life that your girls have, like, how do you, how do you think about that as a father? Well, it's, uh, you know, I can't help but to put it in perspective sometimes how fortunate they are or how lucky they are. Uh, because I would say, well, from age 
my uh, should be tomorrow. She's gonna be nine year old, the uh, youngest one, and I didn't see my father from the age of five to ten. And you know, I can't imagine even that. You know, not seeing your dad one single day from that age of uh, five to ten, which is crucial year. Um, or let them explain that you know, going to school is a privilege. It's an opportunity where I, I didn't have that opportunity. It's just whether their parents can afford, which is, you know, a dollar, a dollar a month <laughs> or not even, not even 25 cents, 25 cents American uh, quarter, you know, uh, which is two, three bur uh, Ethiopian money at the time. And that's not an easy one to have. You have to sell a lot of eggs and chicken and to get that. So uh, here in the United States is a privilege that have opportunity to, uh, to everybody mandatory to go to school, to be literate. And not everybody's that way in Eritrea. In fact, you, sometimes you go to school for the first time when you are 10 year old or 15 year old. So, uh, and at that point you probably feel ashamed or scared and you know, you're some the privileged kids or the people that have the opportunity to go when they're six, Imagine the 15-year-old sitting with them in the same because it's not according to your age like it's in the United States or adult school and things like that. It's more what you know. Do you know your ABCs? Do you know how to write? Do you know how to read kind of thing? And that's where they put you according to your level. So, you know, Yordano's my wife and, and, and I try to do the best we can to humble them. You know, we want them to live to be a childhood, which she's also from Eritrea. I came here when she was uh, about six years old. Uh, she started in third grade. I started in sixth grade. But, you know, understand that this is a privilege they have have them the the kids life we didn't we did not have a kid life you know you vicariously we're trying to live with our kids now but at the same time both our parents your parents and mine they said the worst thing you can do to a child is spoil them <laughs> and but sometimes you know uh, we didn't have those things so we try to be uh you know kind of a little bit loose but at the same time we are very very strict to make sure they understand what's going on or how they're doing. And, and uh, you know, it's a privilege to be able to just witness, uh, you know, sometimes I wonder, I'm like, I'm learning what a computer is, what a desk is, what a book is when I was in sixth grade through pictures. <laughs> Here they're writing a paragraph or an essay or a report. And I'm like, I wish I had those uh, opportunities, but you know, it's, I always say it's not where you start, it's how you finish, you know, whether it's a race, whether it's life, whether it's education. But, you know, uh, we try to be there for them and love them unconditionally, try to support them the best we can. But at the end of the day, let them know that they need to be independent for themselves. And, you know, we took them like as an air chat about for two months, two years ago. And we'll probably do that again this summer. But, uh, you know, is is you know, when they witness it themselves, you know, uh, people have... You know, in the United States, it's a fashion to have holes in your jeans or <laughs> on your elbow or whatever. But those are the reality of it because they wore it for so long, the clothes or kids don't have, uh, you know, a jean, another change of clothes. And so when I came the first, uh, last two summers, to my girls, I said, look where, where you are walking to school. I said, you're walking on the sidewalk. You're walking not on dirt. You know, did you see those kids that were living in Eritrea? how they were walking and their shoes are holes in them and some of them don't have shoes and things like that. So, you know, it is uh, try to tell them, but by seeing it is believing it. So sometimes the, you know, they say a picture is worth a thousand words and, you know, going over there hopefully will humble them and hopefully do, they can work harder. Yeah, that's really valuable. So, so what's your, we're going to move on to running, but 
while we're on the topic of parenting and children and family, <laughs> uh, uh, what's your greatest joy in parenting your girls? I think the greatest joy of our parenting is uh, for me to be able to see them excited and happy to try to learn, you know, and uh, they come and ask questions. I don't, I try not to uh, say so much, but when I do say it, I tell them, you know, I mean it, you know, and uh, for me, if they ask me questions about, oh, why is this? And then I take, it, it, it sparks me up to teach them. Uh, or, you know, sometimes take it for granted because you do it every day or you can assume they know, but, oh, I guess I got to, you know, step, scale it down, teach them a few, few things. So teaching the kids is, is really nice. And um, on this topic, you've mentioned your wife a few times. And, you know, in the book, first of all, I had to get a good laugh because you talk about, you know, your first date at the Olive Garden. And <laughs> I'm like, oh, the Olive Garden. That's I don't know why I thought that was so funny, but... Um, and, and it was so, I don't know, just the fact that you won this Olympic medal and you went straight to the girl who you, or woman, I should say, who you clearly had your heart set on. Um, how did you guys meet though? Because she's from your home country. So, but you're both in America. So how did you meet? You know, uh, I joke around sometimes. Both our parents are arranged marriage. <laughs> <laughs> so... I kind of joke around with that, but no, she is grew up, uh, well, I was born, both born in Eritrea, but she grew up in Tampa, Florida. I grew up in San Diego, and she came to L.A. for, you know, she used to work in Jacksonville, which I won six, seven national titles at the Gate River 15K U.S. Championship, but she never, we never crossed road, you know, she's a sports fan. Uh, she likes to run and, uh, and sports, but um when I met her was in San Jose. San Jose was in 2004. She came to went to LA, and her family kind of convinced her to go to San Jose and kind of check it out. There, there was a soccer festival every Fourth of July. There's a soccer festival, Eritrean soccer festival, and she went there. And thank you, I think, to probably airline, she could change her flight from LA to San Jose. And then I was in Mammoth Lake training for the 2004 Olympics, and the trials uh, were going to happen right after the soccer tournament in, in Sacramento. And I went a week, 10 days early or so, because they want me to give a, a talk to the youth about education, about life in general. And uh, I wasn't planning on going there that early, but I happened to go early because the community asked me to come. And I saw her, I spotted her on Thursday when there was soccer play going on. And my brother was playing, her brother was playing at that tournament and kind of bumped. The, I saw her and then a friend of, of, of a guy that who knew I was asked me, hey, how are you doing? How's running? This and this and that. And I said, I'm good. He said, well, um, you were with five girls. And if that's your sister, I'm sorry. If that's your girlfriend, congratulations. But if you're single, I'd love to meet her. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, who is, what does she look like? I said, she's light-skinned. She has a long hair. And he called, they called, he called up my, one of them, the, her or her sister. And they kind of showed me where they were. And um Kind of like it didn't, he told me her name, but I, I, when you when you hear the first name for the first time, you don't remember it too well. But I kind of went in there and I'm like, you know what? I was so nervous. <laughs> I, said, I will probably never see her my entire life again. But God help me, I'm gonna try to approach this girl and say hello, introduce myself, and I did. And uh, she kind of like, what brought you here? I'm, oh, my brother's playing and. And then I try to say, hey, I'm getting ready for the Olympic trials. I made a marathon team. Oh, you run a marathon. Oh, let me introduce you to my sister-in-law. And she introduced her sister-in-law. Her sister-in-law interviewed me. And then by the end of the, you know, 
40 minute conversation around and stuff. She's like on the car ride to the hotel. Her mother, her sister-in-law was telling her, you're going to marry this guy. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so that's how it all started. And then eventually after, I, I don't know, she was from Florida. So I'm like, well, let me play smart, play cool, and then take her out on Sunday. And I was hoping to take her on Sunday. And, uh, but she said, I'm flying back, flying back to where? She's like, to Tampa. I'm like, oh, my heart just dropped. I'm like, I just got finished with a long distance relationship not long ago. And I'm like, oh, I don't want to deal with that. But it worked out. Yeah. You went and got your girl after you got that medal. <laughs> oh, yeah. I said, you know, I invite her to come visit me in Miami Athletics when I was training. And in fact, I did invite her to go to the Olympics because I was the Olympic train at the train center in Crete, the island. But she she said, no, you got to come visit me first. I said, well, I, if I'm going to do it, it's going to be after the Olympics because I'm getting ready for the biggest race of my life. And I hope you can be patient with it. And then I booked my flight for 4.50 a.m. flight to uh, to Tampa, Florida. And whether I won a medal or not, after I won the medal, she kind of tried to convince me to go to see my parents. But I said, the, the medal doesn't change who I am. And my plan is to come see you. And and that's what I did. And I carried my handbook, the bouquet. I hand carried the bouquet with me uh, to uh, Tampa, Florida. And I, the flight attendant would like them so much that it's like, oh, can I have this? I said, you could have them for the next six hours. But and the flight attendant put her in a vase, which I didn't know they had those in the plane, but, and then handy carry those. And when I first met her at the airport in Tampa, and then straight went out to Olive Garden. In fact, we went, uh, I was in Christmas, I was in Tampa this uh, few weeks ago, and we actually went to that same restaurant no. with the girls. So, yeah. <laughs> for for so, sentimental reasons? Well, we were just driving by, we were trying to figure out where to go, and then we saw the girls like it, Olive Garden, and her nephews and nieces were with us, so... They wanted to go there. We're like, well, I think this is the one we went to. And what do you remember where we sat down was a confusing restaurant. So <laughs> we went there and the manager is like, hey, this is the 2004. It's like, didn't I just see you on TV? I said, uh, yeah, I won the medal. He's like, well, the welcome. We made America proud. Welcome to our restaurant. And it's in the house. So, oh. Yeah, that's how it all worked out. So basically, guys listening, if if you're traveling in the same place that Meb will be at, just go to your local Olive Garden and <laughs> your chance of a Meb sighting is high. <laughs> true? True, true. Especially when I was in college, I was going, you know, that's, you know, I always like, it. Uh, you know, it's like when you hear your family, that's what their slogan is. And, uh, you know, when, when I was at UCLA, I liked to have spaghetti with meatball. That's how my, what my mom made me when I was in high school. So I had that one at Olive Garden, many, many travels, getting ready for NCAAs. Meb, are your parents still alive? Yes, my parents are still alive, fortunately, and uh, they're they're doing well. And they're actually going to Eritrea in about six days or so. Oh, cool! Very cool. So well, my cousins married. Oh, nice. So you you know we talk about you, when you and your wife Yardana is that how I'm, am I saying it right? Yard Yardanas. Yardanas. Um, mm -hmm. you we talk about when you guys met. I mean, in a very pivotal important moment in your career and throughout your career after that she's been a really important player in the game um you know in the book you talk about some of the best advice you you were given before a race came from her you know when she kind of cautioned you even though you knew and you were experienced not to go out too hard don't go out too hard and and I think that's really special to hear you talk about her in that way. That piece of your life, running is such a huge piece of your life and that she's been so involved. Can you talk about her relationship with, with that part of your life? 
Yeah, for every great man or good man has a greater woman, and I'm very fortunate to have her in my life. I think she gave me a lot of peace of mind of helping out with the kids so I can travel or go to camps and or just have a pillow talk about, you know, what next goal is or, in fact, just, you know, I remember very vividly talking about, you know, for me it was more, I wanted to get more self-satisfaction to run under 27 minutes for a 10K, and that was my bucket list. And I have to go overseas to do it. Sometimes the pacing is off. Sometimes I'm getting lapped. <laughs> Sometimes, you know, it's just a lot of mishaps. And and she says, you already have the American record. What are you trying to do? You know, you already have it. So it's not even going to make you more marketable. And But if you do run well in the, in the marathon, and why don't you just focus on the marathon and see what you could do? And, you know, that was in 2009 where I made that transition to, you know, I was going back for 10K marathon, 10K marathon, but eventually was uh, decided to uh, to focus on the on the on the marathon, and a lot of great things happen. And you know, talk about sometimes you see, see me run, put my heart and soul into it, and training and in races, and sometimes you got to be patient and save some energy. Don't don't feel like you have. To, I'm a front runner. I love to be in the front. I love to exchange. Close with other people, and uh, but sometimes it comes at a price. When I hit the wall, I hit hard, <laughs> and 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 fade away. So some of the toxic says like, you know, you gotta let others do the work and stuff like that. So, yeah. So she'd been uh, she'd been very instrumental as, as a wife, as a, a friend, and also you know ad- advice. Uh, you know, she never ran a marathon, but she done half marathon. But uh, she, you know, she's a student, a student of the sport and. And as I am, and we chat a lot about it and kind of watch some races together. Hey guys, I want to jump in real quick and thank a sponsor for this episode. And that is Zola. Zola is the wedding company that will do anything for love. It's reinventing the wedding planning and registry experience. Zola's the easiest way to plan your wedding and register. Join 500,000 couples who've used Zola. Zola takes the stress out of wedding planning with free wedding websites, your dream wedding registry, affordable save the dates and invitations, and easy to use planning tools. Zola makes it easy to personalize your favorite design with all your wedding details, add photos, stories about how you met, travel, and accommodation info, and even recommend things to do for your guests while they're in town. You can put your Zola registry on your wedding website so guests can get all the details they need and to buy your wedding gift in one convenient and beautiful place. Build your dream registry at Zola. Guests love free shipping and returns, price matching, and more. You can also create a funds for your honeymoon, future home, new puppy, or anything you want. Plus, register for gift cards to your favorite brands like Delta Southwest, Hulu, Home Depot, and more. They also have the best completion discount, 20% off remaining gifts of your registry starting right after your big day. So this is giving you the ease of so many planning features all on one site. To start your free wedding website and also get $50 off your registry on Zola, go to Zola.com slash another. That's Z-O-L-A. Again, to start your free wedding website and also get $50 toward your registry on Zola, Z-O-L-A, go to Zola.com slash another. All right, guys. And don't forget to join me at the Donna Marathon weekend, the weekend of February 10th. Join myself, the Donna Marathon Group, and the St. John's County VCB. I am so excited to partner up with these people and have a great time at the Donna Marathon. This race directly raised 
raises funds for the Donna Foundation, which helps fund groundbreaking research in breast cancer and care for those living with the disease. This is personal to me. And so this race is just, it means so much to me. This is personal to me because I have the BRCA2 gene mutation and um, that puts me at a very high risk of of getting breast cancer in my lifetime. I'm so thankful that I had the opportunity to actually uh, opt to have a prophylactic double mastectomy. And that's because of research. And that's because of foundations like the Donna Foundation who are putting money towards researching around this disease. So if you want to join me in Jacksonville, Florida, February 10th, I'm doing the half marathon. But the day before, there's a 5K, a 10K, there's a full marathon. And we are going to have so much fun. We're doing a shakeout run at 8 a.m. the Friday before the race. And you guys can use the code Lindsay15 to get 15% off your registration. It's not too late to register. Book a trip, check flights, come meet up down there. It's going to be a blast. And send me a message on Instagram, uh, comment on the show notes if you're going to be there. I'd love to meet as many of you as possible. Uh, LindsayHine626 is my Instagram to do that. All right, link to register in the show notes, lindsayhine.com. Let's continue my conversation with Meb. Most people listening and most people who are fans of the sport of running have watched your career, but you've run so many marathons, like more than most professional runners, I feel, it seems at least. And it's so fun to go through chapter by chapter and actually see what Meb was thinking, what you were thinking during each of these races that were some victorious some felt like setbacks. And, and what I love is when you talk about those races that might have felt like a setback, um, you talk about how seeing yourself succeed in tough circumstances, um, how that can give you hope and what greater things you can actually accomplish. And, you know, so many times we run a race that might not be what we think is to our full potential. But in this book, you talk about as a professional runner, as your job, you, you've been through that, but then you can still see what lies ahead and how good it can be. Absolutely. For me, uh, I am very fortunate to have, you know, faith and running and identity and life from my marathon experiences. Uh, God gave me the, the engine to maximize my potential and influence people. And, you know, but you can't win every race. You try, you train, but preparation is the success and some preparation goes smoothly. And at the end of the day, some things happened, like the 2007 trials. I mean, that was the most devastating mm-hmm. mentally, physically, and emotionally. And you don't always get what you think you deserve. Can you, you tell know, everybody was, about that trial? Yeah. So it, it was in 2000, November of 07 in New York City. And in New York place, New York, I've been second place, third place. You know, it's where I started my first marathon. My first marathon, I said, this is first and last. I never want to do it again. But I keep coming back, coming back. And after finishing second in the Olympic, third in Boston, and second in New York, and third in New York, I'm like, I'm ready for a win. But, uh, you know, the race in November, I pulled out, in fact, out of London in April, that 07 year, to to protect, to try to make the Olympic team. So I did everything that I could to get it right and maybe win my first marathon ever. But as the race unfolded, uh, uh, my goal was to win. I was a favorite by, in terms of, according to Runner's World, and, uh, um, you know, I, my train was just 
epic. My training was, I was the fittest I ever been, the lightest I ever been, and looking forward to that first win. And the gun goes off uh, about f- uh, 10 miles into the race, an ambulance gets in the way, and I was running next to Ryan Hall, and I'm like, what's going on? What time they close the road? And, uh, um, you know, let's pick it up the pace, let's get it down to three people, try to make the Olympic team, and kind of settle in. And we were going pretty good pace, and he just he said, Ryan, that is Ryan Hall. He said, let's see what the, the split is, and we ended up around 448 or something. I'm like, oh, that's fast enough. And two miles later, my calves start tightening up. Um, and then I was like, okay, yes, go with Ryan, try to get that second place, second place, and then third place, third place. And then later I realized I'm falling up, you know, having hip pain, kind of going through it, and I'm like, maybe I could be an alternate because in the, in the Olympics, if somebody makes Olympic team, might do the 10K, and they make the 10K team, they might not do the marathon or vice versa. So I'm like, maybe I can be alternate. Maybe I could be a second alternate. I just kept going and going and going. And I finished eighth place, uh, devastated, uh, not making the Olympic team. And then I realized right after I finished, um, a good friend of mine says, do you know what happened to Ryan? And I'm thinking Ryan Hall, that, you know, it was a misty day, rain. So I thought he fell. I'm like, no, it's like Ryan Shea. He's like, no, what happened? He's like, he's dead. I'm like, whoa what do you mean he's like he's dead i'm like so i just collapsed to the ground and cry hysterically and i can i can get back up people have to lift me up and and it was so mentally physically and emotionally was done you know you think and i don't know what's wrong with me right now i just think you know what i guess i was thinking i was just not making the olympic team but now here's a friend of mine who was i was sitting on the start on the bus to the starting line it's gone from us, just, uh, you know, it's, it's a tough day, really, really tough day. And, but somehow, some way, you just try to see what, what's the purpose of God is. And I remember te- texting a few friends and about him and then uh, try to look for Alicia Shea, his widow, and she was already checked out. And I could have walked. I mean, people have to lift me. And, you know, everybody talked about how the New York, New York City Central Park, the trial is going to be 215, but Ryan Hall ran to 09 and changed just to 0903 or so. And, you know, people say it was going to be a very difficult course. And I just took that, oh, okay, that course was so difficult that I, I my hips are hurting, my glutes are not, or not. And I tried to work it out. And I saw a doctor on Monday and see if I could do MRI. He says, no, the course is so difficult that, you know, you know it's just you got glute syndrome or tightness so it will ease up and then 10 weeks did I realize that I had a pelvis stretch fracture and I went 10 weeks without not knowing what was going on and most of you know there's a sidewalk to the street the ramp that goes like a bike or a skateboard or something I did not have enough energy to lift from the street to the sidewalk you know we're talking about half a foot or six inches I couldn't lift it so you know, I saw Dr. Louis Meharam eventually who diagnosed the problem uh, in New York. But it's, uh, it was a really, really tough. But I made a new goal uh, for me was I remember when my wife and I, I was crawling on the, in the hotel to go to the from, from the bed to the room to the bathroom. I have to crawl on my knees and elbows. And she's like, this is not a way to make a living. You, need, you have your, your college degree. I have my college degree. We can do something. And so let's pray about it because what I had trained for did not depict what happened on that that day. And I still had hope, but, you know, I said, hey, well, I guess I'm not going to Beijing to defend my silver medal, but let's see what we can do to uh, to win New York City Marathon because I cannot wait another four years. New York is going to be my my Olympic, my Olympic marathon, and I hope to win a gold. And that's what happened in 2009. So 
you know, sometimes things click and other times don't, but you know, you got to set your long-term goals and never let go of those dreams. Yeah. You talk about how, you know, after you won your medal in the Olympics that winning New York or Boston was really more important to you at that point than winning another medal. Why is that? Because as an elite athlete, your goal is to go to the Olympics. And uh, fortunately for me, I done it in 2000 at the 10K. And then 2004, I became an Olympic uh, uh, medalist. And for me, unless I win a gold, even if I win a gold, it, it's more prestigious for me. That is a bucket list. You know, I haven't won New York or Boston. So I want to be a medalist, check. I want to be an Olympian, check. And then now the next thing is, and uh, so can I win New York or Boston? Those were my goals. And uh uh, you know, it happened a lot later, you know, <laughs> 10 years later for Boston and five years later for uh, New York. But uh, for me, I read a lot of uh, the quotable runners, uh, whether it's Bill Rogers or John Bonoit, uh, people who, who have been in the uh, or joined been the Olympics or have won those, what it means to them. And I wanted to be like them. Yeah. Who do you look up to most in the sport? I mean, I've been very fortunate to have a lot of great role models. I think in the marathon, I always been looking out to Boston Billy, mm-hmm. the, the Rogers. You know, he's a, a great guy. I got to know him. I think I met him first time about 10, uh, 20 years ago, 99, at the Jacksonville 15K, and I got his autograph. Uh, um, but uh, I think, you know, he's, I, I want to be like him by winning Boston and New York. Uh, and, you know, there was other 10K runners, 5K runners that I want to be like them. And cross country also was important to me. And when you've raced throughout the years and all your marathons, there's been a couple races because of injury that you have dropped out of that you don't, you know, you didn't want to do, but you had to, to get ready for the next race. Um, but notoriously, Meb, you are known for not dropping out. Like, <laughs> you know, you might be teed up to place one, two, three but you finished the race in your place in 22nd, 31st, and you still finished that race. Oftentimes, you know, holding hands with um, Mike Cassidy, the guy from Staten Island. So, mm-hmm. so in those races, in those circumstances, when you very well could say, this isn't my day, I'm clearly not going to do what I came here to do. Why do you stay? For me, it is very important to start a project or start a task and finish it. You know, that's how I've been taught. That's how my parents taught me to do, whether it was academically or chores or simple basic things. And when I'm running a marathon or a 5K or 10K or half marathon, I'm trying to do the same thing that day. And that's how the run to win philosophy came. Uh, run to win doesn't always mean getting first place, but getting the best out of yourself. So if you finish fifth place and you run a personal best, you got, you got no room to complain. But sometimes... Finishing is important as well, not just dropping out. And I have dropped out three races that I remember. They were the 10K. I had a ruptured quad in my when I was the Helsinki World Championship, devastating, 2005. And then 2006, uh, I was on American record pace in the half marathon in San Jose, rock and roll. And I made it 10 miles. Imagine you've got 5K left and the monkey jumps, jumps on your back. And then I, my, I cramp on my right hamstring. And... I pulled out. It was tough, very tough to do. And then, uh, you know, obviously in London, I guess two, three years in a row, not, not that I talk about it, I even mm-hmm. looked at it that way before, but at the London Marathon, that was a very devastating. I mean, I was, you know, I was in great shape, and but I had an issue with my bottom foot where 
uh, had a big hole on it. They took it out the whole callus at the bottom of a big foot and uh, it never filled in. Still to this day, you know, 2007, <laughs> 12, year, 12 years later, is there's still scar there. Um, and, and, and that was devastating to drop out. But I was thinking, okay, this is race is uh, important, but not as important as getting to the Olympic trials. The Olympic trials will lead, hopefully lead me get another medal for our country. So those things that you talk, but, and sometimes there were, those were crucial. And when you are in cramp or you're getting ready for New York, that is in 2006, or getting ready for the Olympics in 2007, or you have rupture quad, you have to stop. But other times where, like you alluded to earlier with Mike Cassidy, 2013 New York City Marathon, you have to finish. Why? Because, you know, that spring, Boston Marathon got bombed and people could not finish. Mm. The, the year, a year before that, Hurricane Sandy came to devastated New York City and people, we, the race had to be canceled. Mm -hmm. And plus, you have to think back, like for me was, and then another one was, my dad has to walk 225 miles to save his life. But on mile 19, where my, my mind says go, my body says no. I could not lift the next stride. But was I, I, I guess I can walk. You know, people are going to pass me, but I don't care if it means I have to finish in four hours or three hours. I'm going to get to the finish line. But fortunately, many people encouraged me. I try to go, try to go. And then Mike Cassidy came within a 5K left. And it's like, come on, maybe you can do it. And I just met him that morning at the elite tent. And I said, oh, I'll try like I've done with the others. But, you know, we, we help each other. We encourage each other. We support each other. And we became the best friends, and I think that's what running does for you. Whether you're running somebody next to you, in front of you, back of you, you know you have to work hard. And finishing is very important for me. Um, I could have stopped and get ready for the next race. I was, in fact, I was thinking, how am I not going to stop? Because I don't want them to pull me in the van. Because <laughs> get in the van, it's nice and warm. I have food, but tempting. for me, it's <laughs> tempting. It is tempting. But every marathon that I have run, as I talked to on the 26 marathons. Um, what I have learned through faith, identity, running, life from my H-Man marathons is I always felt dropping out. It hurts. Run is not an easy. And even training is even harder sometimes. So because when you take time off, when you are conditioned, you can run well in the marathon. And if you're not, you can run subpar and get to the finish line. But in training, the commitment, the dedication that you put in 100, 130 miles a week, it's not easy. Because the payoff, there's no guarantee, but all you could do is control what you can for the most part. And, and when it comes to race, even if you have to, you know, back off the pace and get to the finish line is very important. And not everybody runs a PR or not everybody attains their goals, but that's the beauty of running. You can, you can slow down a little bit and get to the finish line. And sometimes disappointment, some people can see it as a disappointment, like my fourth place at the Olympic Games in 2012. I was the best fourth, fourth, fourth best yeah. in the world. I got no room to complain, you yeah. know. I get a medal, but at the same time, you have that. It gives you hope that hey, I could still win New York. I could still win Boston. So, if that wasn't, if I didn't finish that race, Boston would not have been possible. Or when I finished in 2005, as I talked in the book, uh, New York City, I ended up getting third place. Only eight weeks or so of training after having a rupture my quads at the Helsinki World Championship. But I'm like, I was excited he says if i could just stay healthy i just lost i got lost i lost to the defending champion the world record holder if i could stay healthy i can win this and and they only beat me in the last mile and a half or last mile but i got it with, with le less than ideal training i got him to come go i went with him till about mile 24 25 so some hopes happen 
when those things, uh, uh, you can look at a disappointment or you can look at the glass as a half full. Yeah, you know, I, I found that really interesting that you mentioned in literally every marathon, the thought of dropping out crossed your mind. <laughs> and and we all feel that way. At some point in the marathon, we think, why am I doing this to myself? Like, this is so hard. Like, there's nobody holding a gun to my head saying you have to keep running, but I, yet I do it. To hear you say that, it's it's it puts it into perspective. Like everybody's feeling these moments of doubts, but then it comes back around and you feel like really strong, maybe a mile later, like I can really do this thing. And and you mentioned, you know, there are multiple times throughout your career where you're like, well, is this my last shot at New York? Or is this my last shot at Boston? And, you know, mm-hmm. when you won Boston in 2014, you were 38. And, <laughs> and we talk about this with, with running. We talk about you know, we've been, you know, we've been watching Shalane kind of reach the point where she, is she going to retire? And, you know, she just ran New York and we kind of watch you guys, you elite runners, when you get into your mid to late thirties and thinking, is this the last one? Is this the last one? But you went into Boston at 38 years old thinking, even though I'm lining up with people that have ran way faster, like so much faster of a marathon time than you had ever ran, I can still win this thing. So how do you get to the starting line at 38 years old, 10 years older probably than a lot of people running, um, knowing that there are 15 men that have ran faster than you. How do you stand at that start line and say confidently, I'm going to try to win this thing and I think I can do it? Well, for me, my, my uh, philosophy has been if I have a chance at the starting line, I have equal chance to anybody. You know, Coach Larson and I always talk about one-third of the field, they're going to psych themselves out. One-third of the field is probably doing dealing with injuries, and one-third is going to ready to show up. Are you willing to be, be one of those third and get it to sideline healthy, which is very important? Yeah, Boston 2014, you know, the number one and number two rank runners were in the world were there. But I never got intimidated by people on that race day, you know, except probably the only time I felt – a world record that I my marathon I said I can't beat this guy was 2000, 2004 Olympics uh, Paul Turgot you know he was a 204.55 uh, and I was 210.03 you know he has over five minutes on me I'm like I need a mile head start to try to keep <laughs> up with him you know but at the same time when the gun goes off I say it's 90% is mental 10% is physical in training it's the other way around what I talk about Metformodos my other book with is 90% physical, 10% mental. You got to do the work. You got to do what is right and uh, dedication, the drills, the ice bath, the form, all the important things that you have to do nutritionally and rest and recover. But then when the gun goes off, it's all about mental. And coming to the 2014 Boston Marathon, <laughs> I had less than 1% chance of winning. Or I was the 19th guy in the field uh, t- in terms of time. Mm. But you have nobody can test your heart. Nobody can test what you are made of. You have to believe in that, and you got to believe in your teammates and the people that surround yourself. And for me, I knew that was very emotional year uh, after what happened, the catastrophic moment of the bombing. And for a year, every day I thought about it. I'm like, why can't I do something positive on Boston Street? You know, obviously when the Red Sox won it and put the trophy at the finish line, I. I said that to my massage person in Mammoth. I said, I want to do that for the runners on Patriots Day. Mm. So you have internal dialogue every single day. Or you see the Boston Strong 
going through airport or you see some places with the be strong and you're like, oh, I got a sense of purpose. I got to do this. And you visualize, you know, you, I, I'm a believer, so I communicate with God. And when I'm by myself training in Mammoth Lakes, nobody's watching except a couple of deers in the road or <laughs> one car that you see. But I do the cross. I said, God, you know, I know I'm preparing for this. Give me the strength. Give me the energy. Or hopefully help me win this race. So you have this constant dialogue. And on race day, you know, you know, my goal was to win top three or to run a personal best. And if I, I'm going to do that, I know I was capable of running a personal best, uh, even though it's not an easy course. But with the p- people in the field, you challenge yourself. And and uh, basically, you know, I wrote the victim's name on my bib to draw inspiration. I was going to have their pictures and pull it up at the end when I come. But that's too complicated with the bibs. And, you know, even writing on the bibs is very touchy for the sponsors but i wrote it with a sharpie not big enough that i want to but just sharpie so it would be visible so you have a sense of purpose and i feel you know i you know you asked me earlier about when i came to the united states i came here when i was 12 year old and that third uh, at 13 years old i ran my first mile to get an a in a t-shirt and coach dick lord realized this guy has a talent. He said, you're going to go to the Olympics. It was an Olympic year, 1988. I had no idea what he meant. I have no idea what the word Olympic meant. I have to ask my dad that evening. I said, what's the Olympic? He said, I'm going to go to the Olympics. And I'm like, he's like, what? How fast did you run? And I ran a 520 in the mile. He's like, you run 520? Your brothers didn't run that fast. Tell the truth. I said, well, that's what he said. And then, <laughs> so come back to the Boston now. I felt my purpose on earth uh, as a runner was the caption, caption of it. Who would ever thought, not that we won 2013, but to be 38 years old, almost 39, two weeks shy of my 39th birthday, to be able to pull off the victory. But it doesn't happen on my time, but it happened in God's time. And it's not for lack of trying. I was, I, it's not the fittest I've been for Boston. 2006, which is eight years earlier than I was the fittest I've ever been for Boston. But sometimes with the experience, with, uh, with the due diligence of training and recovery, uh, and, and, and it happens in God's time. It doesn't happen on my time. If it was my wish, I, you know, I would have done it in 2006 <laughs> or New York after right after the Olympics, 2004 or 2005. But you do the best you can, and there's a lot of other, other people who train very hard to be the best they can be. But when your time is called, your time is called. And I feel honored to be able to pull the 36,000 people who started uh, Hopkinton in 2014 wanting to do something positive, show resilience, and not giving up for the terrorist attack that we had, just go out there and, and try to do something positive, all 36,000 of us. And I was just the fortunate and lucky one to be able to pull the victory and become the first American in 31 years to win the Boston Marathon. You know, you, you mentioned you're a believer. You have a strong faith. Why do you think God gave you this talent? I think God gave me the talent because of, you know, my name is Let There Be Light. You know, for me, you know, uh, you know to influence people, you know, I... Never ran when I was in Italy. I never ran when I was in Eritrea. It's just my parents always taught us to, you are in the land of opportunity. You know, you work hard. You're going to get good things. And, uh, you know, academics, academics. And who would ever thought that seventh grade <laughs> PE teacher, you know, you, you know, I remember vividly like it was yesterday. I can map it out. But that's when I didn't speak the language. I didn't have friends. People made fun of my Afro. People made fun of my uh, tight clothes that I brought from Italy and, you know, all those things. But I guess God gives us all different talents and mine happened to be that running. And in my wildest dream that I ever thought 
I would run as a professional. I thought I'd be a soccer player. Maybe that's what my love was. But, you know, it got me to school, paid for my education, it made a living for me. I mean, I, it made me go to the, because of running, I have gone to the White House, have a dinner with the president of the United States and the first lady, the Obamas. And it's, uh, you know, it's an incredible ride that it has been. Why? I mean, God gives us everybody a talent, whether it's uh, riding skill or whether it's engineering skills or running talents or whatever it might be. We just have to utilize it. As a parent, it's our job to identify what are those possibilities and help help nurture people. And I'm very, very fortunate for the people that have come across. Life is a journey, and uh, God has used those people to help me be who I am. And I'm so fortunate to, to be on this side. You know, we could say, well, you know, you are talented. Well, I was talented, but I was not the most talented person, but I was willing to work as hard as I can because I don't want to disappoint people. I don't want to uh, disappoint God for what God-given talent has given me. And they've been, I've been getting lapped, <laughs> you know, but that's why I'm saying I'm not the most, the most talented on this planet, but I hopefully I have worked hard and do things right. And rise to the occasion when it counts. And as you saw my book, the 26 marathon, I only want, for marathon races, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, but I done 26 marathons, not for lack of trying, but it shows you guidance of not give up your dreams and keep believing, have faith in the long terms because somebody beat you today. You know what? Congratulate him. He will, he or she is a better, better than you today. But internally you can have the drive to say, you know what? I'm going to be back and go out there and work hard. Now talk about running you're an American, like you're running for the USA, um, but you, you came to this country at, ten, at the age of 10. Now talk about what that means to you, because your home country is still very much a part of you and very much important to you. But what, it, what does that mean for you to run for you at the USA? So I've been in the United States since I was 12 and 98. You know, I lived 10 years in Eritrea, a year and a half in Italy, and then 98, I've lived here for 10 years, and it was a tough decision to make uh, because some of my, my dad one is very patriotic. Uh, they want me to run for Eritrea, and a few other brothers and sisters uh, want me to run for Eritrea, and it was a Republican-Democratic uh, debate of who should I run, but there was no guarantees. I mean, for me, most of my experience do come from the United States. You know, I do have memory of Eritrea, some things, but most of my memories were here, so I felt a lot more American than I was you know, Eritrean, but at the same time, my parents always taught us, do not forget your roots, do not forget where you came from. Uh, and the decision had to be made after my finished my eligibility in 98, my eligibility in 98. Um, um, you know, I was, I would have been the first Eritrean to go to the Olympics, but Eritrea was not in the Olympic committee yet. So I said, you know what, in the United States, it's fair and square. You can make the team, if you're top three, which doesn't, at that point, I had no guarantees, you know, but I said, you know what, I work hard, see what I could do. And to wear that red, white, and blue, who gave me opportunity, who gave me the talent and the opportunity to excel what I'm capable of, I was able to take uh, that chance. And uh, I'm a proud American to say, you know what, I present our country at the World Cross Country, World Championship, and Olympic Games. And you know, got close to play the national anthem in, in Athens, but I feel proud to have the national anthem played at New York City Marathon in 09 and at the Boston Marathon in 2014. And, you know, it gives me a lot of pride. Uh, you know, I know sometimes at this moment in, uh, of time, 
uh, refugees and immigrants are not having an easy task, but we came here the right way and feel, you know, the United States gave us an opportunity to be the best we can. And uh, I am an immigrant and I can't forget where I came from, but I'm honored to be able to represent our country to the best that I can. Well, I think that I can speak for everybody here that we're so glad that you have been part of this this running community and, and such a huge, huge part of our sport. I mean, you know, you now you're retired. Like, you have to know, I'm sure, that you are you are going down in history as one of the legends of the sport. And and you have this sense of, I guess you would say, responsibility to be a leader and a role model. So so what does that role look like for you now? I mean, now that you're not out there competing uh, competitively, I'm sure you I'm sure you like to get out there and run run hard sometimes. But but what does that life look like for you now? You know, with us, honor becomes a big responsibility, and I'm so honored to have represent the red, white, and blue, whether it's at the world cross country or uh, track and field and the Olympics. And uh, for me, it's uh, been an honor to represent our country to the best that I can as an elite athlete. But now that I have retired, I try to carry that same responsibility to be an ambassador for the sport of running. And I'm so delighted and honored that people look up to me as an example and, and admiration of what I have done. But I continue to do the best that I can to whether through uh, going to races or doing motivational speaking or meet and greet uh, to represent the sport running. And people are so excited to see me run. I might not run as my heydays are behind me, but at the same time, I still love to run, whether it's a 5K, 10K, half marathon, and occasionally a marathon. The marathon days are kind of narrowing down down and down. I've uh, done a lot of charity work. But uh, at the same time, you know, it's, it feels good to be rewarded with that responsibility. But with that goes dignity and honor and be the best that you can at all times. Well, and, and when you talk about, you know, your marathon days might be numbered, you're still obviously going to remain active and 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 what you talk about in the book too and what you've talked about is the i mean your career the longevity of it was was big I, I, longer than most marathoners and and you talk about the importance of your recovery routine and and you know giving yourself the proper amount of time between key races to recover and then also you know like hop on the bike if you're going through an injury and like stay in shape that way so kind of talk about how people can create that same longevity in their own lives you know Lindsay, i was uh, back in the days people used to say go that extra mile work harder work harder but with science it has shown that now recovery is very important it's not have to run hard every day in fact i go differently now uh, as, as i was training i wouldn't go that extra mile i would take that one mile whether you for the average person if it takes them eight minutes or ten minutes per mile run one less mile instead of running six miles, run five miles and use that four minute, five minutes to stretch beforehand and that four or five minutes to stretch afterward because you don't want to get stiff. You don't want a risk of injury uh, prehab instead of rehab, as I alluded to in the Metformortal book. Don't, don't try to force it yourself. You know, recovery is important. Working hard is important. Well, and I have to bring up uh, Generation UCAN because they're one of your sponsors and they're a big partner and sponsor of this show as well. Um, can you talk about how they've played an integral part in your training for, you know, winning races like New York and Boston? 
Absolutely, Gen- generation you can, and you know you can. Uh, I've been using it since '09, and it's the first thing that goes into my system when I'm recover- when I'm training hard, whether it's a tempo run or interval or long run, or sometimes on the plane. If you if you are stuck on the roadway on the plane, you know you need to have a snack, or whether it's bars or the powder. Is a great way to give you two to three hours of energy without crashing, consistent energy. And UCAN has been there for me for since 2009. And, you know, like you said, crash training is important. Uh, I have used Elliptigo in the past to be able to train instead of doing, it's not how many miles you run, but how you recover, how smart you're going to be with your training, how smart you're going to be with your nutrition. Uh, and sleep is important. You know, you have to do all those things and hope that, uh, everything comes together for you, whether you're running five hours, four hour marathon or three hours, half marathon. We all have different goals, different ambition we want to conquer. But, uh, you know, you can use those to be able to help you be the best version of you. And from you can from Skechers and and Elliptigo has been a great way for me to be able to just say and many other sponsors who allow me to have the flexibility to concentrate on my ability to maximize my talent. And, you know, we. You know, you're not as talented as I am, might not be, but at the same time, we have the same ambition goals to say, hey, I want to complete a half marathon. I want to do a half marathon. I want to fight for Boston. So all those things are going to help people be the best they can. And, and marathon is a, it's a rigorous training. And uh, But, you know, team up with somebody. You know, accountability is very important. You know, you cannot do it all by yourself, but if you're meeting somebody, uh, that will be accountable on those tough winters to to, to meet somebody. When you meet somebody, you're going to do the work. When you do the work, you're going to have a good results. Well, and, and speaking of the meeting your potential, you know, what the, you have ran, is it 12 sub 210 marathons? 12? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. What is it with the 210? Because there's really just not a lot of Americans who have done it. So, <laughs> so what is that? What's the secret? Well, I mean, the secret is one foot after another, but being consistent, you know, consistent training. You know, you asked me earlier the longevity of my career. You know, I was not a very high mileage guy in high school. You have to slowly nurture your body to be the best version you can and do the right workout at the right time, whether it's doing tempos, long runs. Never lose sight. Some people want to, we all want to run, you know, we try to run 207, 206 or faster, but you know, you gotta when the when it, when everything clicks on eight cylinder, it's a beautiful thing, and you want to be that. And to get that ten, you know, two ten is not a not sub two ten is not too chubby. You know, you gotta be able to put the work and go at the pace that you are gonna run evenly instead of going for two oh eight or two oh nine. Just negative split. A marathon is all about even pace, being patient, or negative split it. You know, if you, if you go too hard. You know, you can be in 210 shape, but you're going to interrupt to 12 to 13. Why? Because when you hit the wall, you slow down drastically <laughs> and you don't want to be there. We all have made those mistakes, but it's and, no fun. You know, it's no fun, you know, but you want to be smiling at the end, you know. And sometimes as an elite runner, uh, really, you, because I want to win, I want to be competitive, I want to sp- finish in the top three. Boston Marathon, I think to this day, is my only race that I ran, 2014, that is. My only race that I ran, my own race, and obviously, trust me, people would chase me down like crazy, but at the same time, that was probably the only race I felt I did the way I want to run it. And uh, other races, somebody make a move or you're trying to drop somebody and they dropped you, you're trying to recover. So as elite, as elite, we don't get this privilege, but as a weekend wearers or everyday run- runners, go out there and pace yourself, train for it, and then 
you know, whether you're doing your first marathon, your third marathon, your 10th marathon, only you know what you're capable of doing. Don't get out of your comfort zone or don't get distracted by other people who are in the race. Just run your own race. Yeah, it's you guys have to be so strategic. You might go into the race thinking Bob and Joe are going to do one thing, but then they do something else and you got to <laughs> alter your plans. Alter, right. I mean, you don't have earpiece, a question on your head, they're looking, you know, or you have... 20 second gap or 30 second gap you don't know you just got to react it's an instant instant uh, millisecond decision you have to make and sometimes you can make good decisions and other times the emotion takes off you and then you know you hit the wall and and like you said earlier it's just not a good place to be yeah and you talk about when you drop someone or you get dropped like once once the drop happens even if you speed up a lot you can get back to that pace but like the mental damage that you've done on the person that you've dropped. I mean, there's so much that plays into that. Um, and yeah, we don't have to run like that because we're just running our own race, but you guys, there's so many more things on the line. Two things. I think the elites, uh, are different. Uh, you guys or me now you can run <laughs> you your guys. music. <laughs> you oh, can yeah. run uh-huh. music. We cannot have that. And two, you can run your own pace and say, you know what? I'm going to start really comfortable pace according to me and sometimes for us we kind of going for the tangent we're going for the water bottles like everybody else but sometimes you miss your drinks mm. uh you miss your drink that you've been training with so you cannot have that whereas uh, the average runner can go the next drink and get water or other sports drink so those are the two things that you know can't run your own pace the way you wanted it to because you know you want to compete you want to compete against again against others whereas you Many others are, uh, the mass are competing within themselves, whether they want to get a qualifying time that within the category or they want to challenge themselves to finish under four hours or five hours, whatever it might be. All right. You take all the marathons away except one. Which one do you keep? <laughs> uh, out of all my marathons? Mm-hmm. Man, that's uh, Boston. I, I, have to, I have to keep Boston. And, you know, and the reason is because I am so honored and humble to have accomplished the medal in the Olympics. You know, that was my, you know, my biggest accomplishment as a runner at high school was, was winning a state meet. You know, it was like, wow, I can't believe I did it in my senior year, you know. And then you go to NCA, you won NCA my junior year, like cross country, my senior year, like that was it. And that would have been the pinnacle of my running career. But then you break the American record in the 10K. It's like, wow, how does that happen, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> And then it gets better and better. And to win the medal, that was, you know, that got me in the world, and renowned in the world, in the world, getting silver medal. And then you win the New York City Marathon, the most popular marathon in the world. And, and that was my dream, winning that USA, which had been my dream since the day I started doing a marathon. And, and then the greatest of them all, the Boston Marathon 2014. That's, that's, you know, I try to describe as much as I can, but mm-hmm. that's uh, the pinnacle, the most meaningful victory of my entire career. Boston 2014, you heard it here. Now, I was running in that race as well, you know, like a couple hours back or something like that. And you've heard the story, but we all are. So, you know, I was looking back. I guess I was looking for you. You were looking for me. That's who <laughs> I was coming up on you. <laughs> I, I was really trying to get you on Heartbreak Hill. Right. I, um, but you know, like you, you know, that we were all back there wondering what was going on and people on the sidelines that the crowd was just crazy that year. And we all hear that Meb won. And I mean, it's like everybody was celebrating the rest of that race, even though we were all, you know, working hard to still 
finish. And that was just, that was so cool. And I, I've talked to, um, you know, I've talked to Des about her victory last year and just to know, to hear you guys about winning the race. And then I think both years was she, when you won, was she in the stands or, and when she won this year, you were back running your three hour marathon. I mean, it's just so cool. Just the community and the camaraderie we all have. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's, uh, it's an honor to hear stories. You know, when I do meet and greet, people tell me, hey, I was the Boston Marathon. I saw the, the riding that Meb won on Heartbreak Hill or and the award got around. Everybody was just celebrating. And it's such an honor to hear that. And so many people wanted to tell me where they were, mm-hmm. I mean, whether it's at work, you know, they were at work and they were watching the marathon online. And the next thing is the, everybody at work came to watch, hover over them to watch on their computer. Or, you know, some people were heard on the radio or they were on a flight and things like that. So uh, it's one of those moments where were you and I won the Boston Marathon and people have a story to tell you. And I love hearing it. It never gets old. But, yes, through the marathon of uh, the energy that was vibrant once the people heard, you know, some people say I had the bad race but the experience in itself was an amazing because we heard the race that you won and it was a lightning it's it's a beautiful thing and i was both when shalane uh won her race i was having a tough day as my last uh, um my last marathon and i was struggling i was a mile 24 uh, you know i you know i'm not a i'm not a basketball player by any means i don't jump very high but I heard that she won at mile 24, almost where Ryan Shea passed away, where the bench is. And I just jumped with both arms in the air like a little kid, you know, like he scored a touchdown. It's like awesome, you know. And then obviously when I was, when Desi won, I was right on uh, uh, Heartbreak Hill or so. And it says, Desi won, not kidding. And it's like, sweet, you know. So you, <laughs> I've been in those races where I kind of vicariously live, like the, the, the way you felt, the energy that it gives you. Uh, your fellow Americans winning races, uh, male, female, is just awesome. You'll never pass that spot in Central Park without thinking about Ryan Shea, will you? No. Every time I go there, whether I'm doing backward running and stuff, uh, I, I tell people, you know, that's, yeah, that's, I do the cross, uh, whether I'm racing or not racing, and think of them often. All right. Let's wrap up with our end of the podcast questions, Meb. All right. Let's do it. Did you accomplish all you wanted to accomplish in the sport? Absolutely, yes. And that's not very rare for athletes to say that, but I'm, I'm very content. Yeah. What are you doing this spring, by the way? This spring, I'm traveling a lot, making appearances uh, and motivational speaking. Book tour type stuff. Book tour. Well, hopefully yeah. if you come to um, the mini in Indy, we can connect at some point. I don't That'd know if wonderful. I'm going to be, I'm actually meeting with them next week. I don't know if I'm going to be doing any type of panel or anything, but hopefully that'll work out again. That'd be great. That'd be great. They had really, really great reach, uh, outreach when I did my first book signing in, uh, in Indianapolis in 2010. It was a really great turnout. All right. So if you, uh, what's one thing personally or professionally? So maybe personally, because you said you were happy with all that you accomplished professionally. Uh, what's one thing you haven't done that you want to do yet in life? Who I always tell people I wanted to ski and uh, surf. So you're going to go do that? I like to do that. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I think I've been traveling around the world, been very fortunate. But uh, if I haven't done in terms of activities, that's what I like to do. 
ski and ski and surf, but they seem, they seem so hard. I, sometimes <laughs> I'm at the, in San Diego, you know, at the pier in San Diego, the beach, and I see people surfing like, I want to get there one day. <laughs> well, now you don't have to worry about getting injured for running. So. That's right. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um, if you could have coffee, cocktail, tea, go for a run with anybody living or dead in the world, someone motivating or inspiring, who would it be? Whew, that's a really tough question. I think alive uh, would be Kobe Bryant or Pele. It would be nice to do that. I met Kobe a few times. I uh, think he's just resilient, how he played the game. Just amazing uh, man. And Pele, he's my idol. He's the first professional athlete that I ever met, uh, that I ever heard of. Now, I haven't got a chance, opportunity to meet him yet. Um, and then Muhammad Ali would be another guy that I would, uh, would do. Love it. So I gave you three. You gave me three. That's a great answer. Podium. Some podium. <laughs> What's the best, most recent book you read? Oh, um, Endure is the one I'm reading right now. I just read also Ryan Hall's book. Just oh, yeah. That. Okay. Last I have time. that on my list. Was it good? It was great. You have to say that because you guys are friends, but it was good, really. Oh, it was great. It was great. <laughs> no, it was great. Are you guys just, still good friends? Just, oh, yeah. We're still good buddies. What is your one message that you'd like to send to the world or at least to my listeners? I would say run to win. It doesn't mean getting first place, but getting the best out of yourself in whatever profession or whatever you are doing, whether you're a student, a worker, or how, trying to have a positive impact on life. You know, it's not about running, but what you're doing with your life. And I hope to be a balanced person. That's my goal. Well, Meb, I hope to see you in May. Sounds great. I hope to see you there too. I, I don't know how we hadn't shown me the detail yet, but I would love to be there. They've been great to me. And um, you guys, when, when it comes out, what, what date is the book dropping, Meb, by the way? I think March 19th is when it's coming out. Okay, 26 marathons, March 19th. Definitely pick it up if you're a fan of the sport because, you know, like I said, you we've watched your career and we've watched all these races, but to actually get inside and break down each marathon was really cool experience to read. Now you can be in my head and try and figure out what I was thinking and how I was every step of the way. I, the whole point was to just kind of get, take you on a journey about identity, running, and life from each of my marathons that I have run. It's really good. All right, Meb. Well, thanks so much for your time, and uh, we'll connect soon. Sounds great. Thank you again, Lindsay. Okay, thanks. Bye now. All right, everybody. Thanks so much for listening today. Check out the sponsors of this show that make it possible. Head over to generationucan.com slash another and save 15% off and get free shipping when you use the code another19. And check out Coros, coros.com, my new favorite watch. You can get 10% off when you use the code another. Links to all of that will be in the show notes. Thanks, Meb, for coming on the show. Loved having you on and uh, getting to know you more. That was so much fun. Hey, you guys can find me on Instagram, lindsayhine626. You can find me on Twitter, at lindsayhine. And you can find me on Facebook. I'll have another podcast with Lindsay Hine. We also have a group over there. Hit us up. I'll have another podcast with Lindsay Hine. Lots of good interactions and conversations going on over there. And yeah, one last plug. Go donate to my Donna Foundation fundraiser. Let's get this 3,705 up over 10,000. Links to everything we talked about in the podcast episode, sponsors, all the good stuff will be in the show notes, lindsayhine.com. All right, guys, have a great weekend. Have a wonderful Friday. And as always, I'll see you next Friday.